Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules Based Disorder. I hope everyone's having a good Friday. Feel free to join the chat, join the queue. I'll answer any questions that people have, and we can have a discussion. I'm going to begin today talking about one of the stories that I'm sure everyone has heard. It's all over the the news. That's the assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Now, I will of course preface this by saying that this is tragic. I absolutely do not endorse the assassination of political leaders, no matter how horrible their political views are. And yeah, obviously, I'm not I'm not discussing this to in any way endorse the killing. That said, I did want to to provide some more political context because, although again, this isn't to justify it. The Western media is portraying Shinzo Abe as some great dove, as some angel, as, as this, this great democratic, peace-loving leader. But in reality, Shinzo Abe was a horrible, far-right, extremist, ultra-nationalist who, with horrible views, with a horrible track record, and really represented the leftover remnants of Japan's genocidal fascist empire. Of course, anyone who knows the most basic modern history about Japan knows that in the early 20th century, it created an empire modeled after the Western imperialist system and carried out a genocidal colonization campaign in numerous parts of East Asia, including in modern day China, and Korea, and the Japanese empire was implicated in killing millions of people and sex enslavement of numerous uh, women from Korea and, and China and parts of East Asia and Southeast Asia. So the Japanese empire committed horrific crimes. And then, of course, it invaded China and invaded Manchuria, and it allied with the fascists in World War II, with Nazi Germany, and with the Italian fascists. Not so fun fact, the Axis powers in World War II, their official alliance was called the Anti-Comintern Pact. The Anti-Comintern Pact is a reference to the Comintern of the Soviet Union, which is this communist international supporting communist movements around the world. So, The fascist alliance in World War II was quite literally an anti-communist alliance. That was what unified the powers together, was anti-communism. And then, of course, anti-communism became the lifeblood, the the ideology that that motivated the United States and NATO during the first Cold War. And really, still today, it's the uh, the official religion, the unofficial religion of the U.S. government and NATO is anti-communism. So anyway, people, of course, probably know that history. What they might not know is that Shinzo Abe was one of the leading apologists trying to rewrite Japan's genocidal imperial history, trying to portray it in a positive light and trying to restore the Japanese empire. So again, this isn't to justify the assassination of him, but it does provide a context to understand who this guy is and why There were people in Japan who hate him. Why there are people who see him as a monster and a criminal. So 
let's talk about the first aspect of this. Shinzo Abe was a member of a fascist cult. And calling it a cult might be a little, um, might, might not be the most accurate term. I mean, it, it is a cult, but it's a very powerful cult. And it's called Nippon Kaigi. And this group is a very powerful cult with prominent members, including business leaders, uh, important Japanese capitalists, Japanese politicians, members of civil society and, and cultural figures. It's, it's a very powerful organization. And it basically is trying to restore the Japanese empire and bring back Japanese fascism. It preaches a kind of religious ideology based in some ways on Shintoism, which is the traditional Japanese religion, but it pushes a, a colonialist fascist version of Shintoism and also a racist version of Shintoism, which sees the Japanese race as superior to other races, especially in Asia. And that was a big part of the Japanese empire's genocidal ideology was seeing Japanese people as racially superior to Chinese people and Koreans and other people in East and Southeast Asia to justify that Japanese colonial conquest. So in, in, in that way, it's, it was very similar to the European fascists, racialist ideologies, especially Nazi Germany's racialist ideology. So Nippon Kaigi preaches that. Nippon Kaigi, this cult that Shinzo Abe was part of, also opposes gender equality and calls for overturning laws on gender equality in Japan. And it wants to overturn human rights laws, laws that, that guarantee human rights. So it's a fascist group. And what they also, one of their very significant, um, one of the things that they're very significantly known for in Japan is is advocating for the rewriting of, of the history of World War II and before World War II, because Japanese colonial crimes, I mean, in the early 20th century, went on even before World War II began. And really, although in the West, World War II is associated with beginning with Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939, it actually goes back even further with Japan's invasion of Manchuria in 1937. And really, the, the Chinese war the Japanese war on China and the war between Japan and China in which Japan committed genocide in China, killing millions of Chinese people. It goes, it goes back really to 1937 and even before. So for China, World War II was not from 1939 to 1945. It was from 1937 until 1945. And again, millions of Chinese killed. We don't even know the exact number, but estimates vary that it was between 10 and 20 million Chinese were killed in World War II and this genocidal extermination campaign by the Japanese who also had concentration camps, who also carried out crimes like the Nazi Holocaust. So, so Nippon Kaigi, this group that, that Shinzo Abe was part of, has been trying to rewrite that history. They're basically Holocaust revisionists, but for the Japanese Holocaust. And they basically say that the crimes committed by Imperial Japan and World War II and before are either false or are exaggerated. That's a big part of their narrative. And in fact, they claim that the Japanese empire was 
a civilizing force that was liberating countries in Asia and, and providing them with progress and, and all of these ridiculous, you know, uh, imperialist narratives that the West so frequently promulgates. And for context, I said that, you know, this cult in Nippon Kaigi that Shinzo Abe was part of, and, and maybe the cult, a cult isn't the best word because it, a cult might imply that maybe it's not, it's like small and fringe usually. But this cult, Nippon Kaigi, is so powerful that under Shinzo Abe's government, 15 out of the 18 ministers in his cabinet were also members of Nippon Kaigi. 15 out of 18 of his ministers. That is to say, the vast majority were also these borderline fascists who want to bring back the Japanese empire. Now, let's talk about Shinzo Abe's father and grandfather, because he came from a family of war criminals and war criminal apologists. His grandfather was a key figure involved in Imperial Japan and was was identified even by the U.S. government as a close ally of Nazi Germany who was complicit in war crimes during World War II. So it, the, the grandfather of Shinzo Abe was named Nobusuke Kishi, and he was actually imprisoned after World War II because of his role in the genocidal Japanese empire. And he was convicted, or rather, he not convicted. Let me take that back. That, he wasn't convicted. He was suspected of war crimes and obviously was very deeply involved in war crimes. But what happened? The U.S. government, they did not charge him. And the, the puppet regime created by the United States and Japan after World War II pardoned Kishi. Again, this is the grandfather of Shinzo Abe, this, this war criminal who collaborated with the Nazis in World War II. And not only was he pardoned and not charged, he was kicked upstairs and promoted and became prime minister. So Shinzo Abe is the fail son of a family of war criminals and Nazi collaborators and fascists. And his grandfather was also prime minister. So there is a lot of really good information about this. And I would highly recommend this group, which is called Nodutol, which is N-O-D-U-T-D-O-L, Nodutol, which is a Korean anti-imperialist group that has provided a lot of really good information about Shinzo Abe and his fascist ties and politics. So Shinzo Abe also, when he was prime minister, he visited something that was very, very controversial called the Yasu, Yasusu, excuse me, the Yasukuni shrine. The Yasukuni shrine honors Japanese war criminals who during the Japanese empire committed war crimes. And in addition to his honoring of Japanese war criminals who committed these crimes during World War II, in addition to him trying to rewrite the history of these Japanese war crimes, Shinzo Abe refused to acknowledge that Japan committed massive sexual slavery of, of women in East Asia, specifically Korean women and Chinese women. And in fact, he denounced Japan's official government apology for the sexual trafficking and enslavement of Asian women. In 1993, the Japanese government formally apologized in something called the Kono Statement. And Shinzo Abe 
wanted to renounce that. He wanted to disavow that statement. And furthermore, in 2018, again, this is from this group, Noruto, this great Korean anti-imperialist group. In 2018, South Korea's Supreme Court issued the opinion that Japanese corporations that use slave labor from Korea during World War II must pay 89, uh, that's actually not even that much money, $89,000. I think that might be a mistake. Let me, let me check this. They said 89,000, but I, they, they can't be 89,000. That's nothing. They, the, the Korean court, oh, this is a dumb paywall. Anyway, whatever. That's not the main detail. So in 2018, South Korea's Supreme Court issued an opinion saying that Japanese corporations that use slave labor from Korea during World War II had to pay reparations to surviving slave laborers. So what was the response of Shinzo Abe? He declared a trade war with Korea. Under Abe, again, this is from Naruto, under Abe, Shinzo Abe, the Japanese government revoked subsidies for schools that, that were for Koreans in Japan taking a hard line against Koreans. Koreans face systemic discrimination and hardship in Japan. And Shinzo Abe also targeted Okinawa, which is has been colonized by Japan. And by the way, it also has a U.S. military base. So it's a dual victim of U.S. imperialism and Japanese colonialism. And there are many protests in Okinawa against the U.S. troops that occupy Okinawa. And there have been horrible cases of U.S. troops that have raped Japanese women and raped women in Okinawa. And, of course, the U.S. still has 55,000 troops occupying Japan. And they get almost never get mentioned. And Japan is portrayed as like this great democracy, blah, blah, blah. It's never mentioned that it's still basically a U.S. colony. It has very little sovereignty in terms of its foreign policy, at least. And that's one of the main reasons that that these fascist figures are promoted is because they are deeply anti-China and they support this very pro-Western policy. So in 2019, Shinzo Abe agreed to relocate a U.S. military base in Okinawa, despite over 70 percent of the people in Okinawa voting against it in a referendum. So we see that Shinzo Abe was combining Japanese colonialism with U.S. imperialism, helping to expand the U.S. military chokehold over his country and expanding the U.S. military footprint in Okinawa, specifically despite the fact that the vast majority of people in Okinawa opposed it. And, of course, Shinzo Abe was a key figure in helping to push the new Cold War on China. Japan has become a major part of the U.S. new Cold War on China, I should say that Japan is also a part of the U.S. new Cold War, U.S.-led new Cold War on Russia. So when the U.S. and the European Union started this, not, I mean, they actually didn't start it, they, when they escalated further this economic war on Russia with the sanctions over the war in Ukraine, although again, that wasn't the beginning of the sanctions, the sanctions actually go back to 2014 when the U.S. orchestrated the coup in Ukraine and then after that, Russia annexed Crimea. It sent its military into Crimea and had a democratic referendum in which the vast majority of the people of Crimea voted to join the Russian Federation in a, a move that was recognized even by war criminals like Henry Kissinger 
as a legitimate move. But anyway, in response to that, the U.S. and the European Union imposed sanctions on Russia. So this this current wave of sanctions that that go back to February of this year in response to the war in Ukraine, those sanctions are not the beginning of the economic war. The economic war has been waged now for over eight years. But the Western economic war that has really just escalated into full-on an economic blockade of Russia starting with February this year, the U.S. and the European Union claimed that the international community joined them in this economic war on Russia. There's one small problem. The vast majority of the global population was in countries that did not back these sanctions on Russia and that maintained neutrality over Russia and Ukraine. There were only two non-Western countries And when I say non-Western, I'm including Australia and New Zealand in the West with a capital W because the West is not geographical. The West is a political project, an imperialist project that was, that brings together these imperialist powers. So Australia as a settler colonial project of the British Empire and New Zealand similarly, they're part of the collective West, if you will. And joining the only non-Western countries that joined the West in this economic war on Russia. There are two countries, actually Singapore as well, but two other countries, Japan and South Korea, both of which are still militarily occupied by the United States. The U.S. has 28,000 troops in South Korea, and the U.S. has 55,000 troops in Japan. So anyway, so Japan has joined the West in this new Cold War on Russia, Japan is also part of the G7, which if you exclude Japan, it's just a bunch of imperialist white countries. The G7, of course, is the group of very wealthy imperialist nations. That is the United States, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, and Japan. Japan is the only non-Western member of the G7. And at the G7 summit that was held just a few days before the NATO summit in Madrid, the the G7 summit was held June 26th to June 28th in Germany. Japan attended. And then after that, Japan attended the NATO summit in Madrid from June 29th to June 30th. And Japan's current prime minister attended that, that NATO summit, despite the fact that Japan is very far from the North Atlantic region It's in the Pacific region, but it attended the North Atlantic Treaty Organization Summit in Madrid, Spain, along with who else? South Korea and Australia and New Zealand. So Japan has become a key part of the new Cold War on both China and Russia. Japan is, of course, also a member of the the. quadrilateral security dialogue, which is known more commonly as the Quad. The Quad is a U.S.-led military alliance bringing together the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia to wage the new Cold War on China. So Japan is a key part of all of this infrastructure. Japan is basically the non-Western uh, you know, uh, token that joins in the Western imperialist alliance. And again, It is militarily occupied by the U.S. still. It has been military occupied since the end of World War II, after the point, of course, when the U.S. 
dropped two nuclear weapons on Japanese civilian populations, killing 200,000 Japanese civilians. And even the U.S. government in its own um, strategic bombing survey that was conducted by the U.S. Department of War at the end or after World War II, they admitted in their own strategic bombing survey that the U.S. nuclear bombing of Japan at the end of World War II was not necessary, that Japan was already on the verge of surrendering. So why did the U.S. nuke Japan? It was the first act of the first Cold War, and it was a very violent act. It shows that the cold, first Cold War, like the new Cold War, is, it was not very cold. It was in many ways hot. It was hot in the global south. And why did the U.S. nuke Japan? It was because the Soviet Union was preparing an all-out invasion of Japan, and the U.S. knew that the Soviet Union would support socialists in Japan who would create a socialist government in Japan. And the U.S. nuked and murdered 200,000 Japanese civilians in order to prevent the creation of a socialist government in Japan that would be allied with the Soviet Union and eventually with the People's Republic of China. And since then, the U.S. puppet regime installed in Japan has been dominated by one party since 1955. Now, Japan is portrayed by U.S. propaganda as a model for democracy, ignoring everything I just talked about in the last half an hour here about these fascists and former war criminals who populated the Japanese government after World War II with the backing of the U.S., just as the, the Nazi war criminals who carried out the, the Holocaust during World War II were allowed, many of them were allowed to govern capitalist West Germany during the first Cold War. And we know that the majority of the members of the German, the West German Justice Ministry during the first Cold War were former Nazis. That NATO recruited many former Nazis. That one, that there were military commanders in NATO who were themselves former generals in the German Nazi army. So just as the U.S. Empire and the CIA, through Operation Paperclip, absorbed many of these Nazis, helping to create NASA with former Nazi scientists, and just as NATO supported these former Nazis in Operation Gladio, similarly, the U.S. rehabilitated a bunch of former Japanese war criminals, these fascist genocidal criminals, and, and they helped run the government, including the grandfather of Shinzo Abe, so you can draw a direct line to the genocidal war criminals of the fascist Japanese empire to the current government today and to people like Shinzo Abe and to the ruling party of Japan, the LDP, which is the ironically named Liberal Democratic Party, which is a very right wing party. And there are factions within it including a full-on fascist faction linked to Nippon Kaigi. And, and of course, Shinzo Abe represents that very far-right faction, although there are people who are even more explicitly fascist than him. And then there are, there's like a more, uh, more, slightly more moderate right-wing faction, but it, they're all right-wingers. And this party, the LDP, has controlled Japanese politics since 1955 
And there have only been five years of interruption. So excluding five years, since 1955, Japan has been a one-party state. Japan is not a model of democracy. Japan is a, still a country that is U.S., that is occupied by the U.S. militarily with 55,000 U.S. troops. And it is an authoritarian one-party state that has been dominated by a right-wing party ever since. And the left has been systematically repressed ever since. And really, for decades, Japan, like South Korea, by the way, had a very authoritarian police state and laws banning left-wing parties, communist parties, labor unions. I mean, it has a very authoritarian history. So just as the U.S. empire absorbed Nazi Germany after World War II, the U.S. The US empire helped to rehabilitate many of these Japanese fascists after World War II, and it nuked and murdered 200,000 Japanese people in order to prevent the creation of a socialist government in Japan, to prevent Japan from becoming an ally of the Soviet Union. All of that context is what I wanted to talk about today. And I know I, I know I spent like the entire episode talking about that, which I hadn't actually planned on, but I just wanted to provide that context because yes, the assassination of Shinzo Abe is tragic and I am not in any way endorsing assassinations of people. I wanted to provide the context to understand why some people in Japan might be very angry with fascists like Shinzo Abe and their attempt to rewrite the history of the Japanese empire and their attempt to remilitarize Japan. I can't believe I didn't mention this. I mean, this is really dumb of me of not, not mentioning this until the end here. That Shinzo Abe is part of a movement of right-wing ultra-nationalist fascists in Japan who are trying to rewrite the pacifist constitution to remilitarize. And of course, they're preparing for a war with China. That's what they're preparing for. They want a war with China to, to recolonize China because the Japanese economy has been declining. Not, 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 it hasn't been, um, you know, negative growth rates, but it has been stagnant. That's the word. The Japanese economy has been stagnant for decades. And that's partially because of U.S. government policies, going back to the Ronald Reagan administration, which was trying to prevent Japanese competition, especially in the tech sector. But anyway, the point is, the Japanese economy has been stagnant for decades, whereas China has become the factory of the world, massive growth rates. Everyone knows that China is the world's leading economic power. So you have fascists like Shinzo Abe who are preparing for, they want to remilitarize Japan and they want war with China. And of course, they're allied with U.S. imperialism and the shared, the shared goal of kneecapping China, of recolonizing China, of carving up and balkanizing China to prevent it from being an independent power. So Shinzo Abe is not a noble martyr. Yes, that isn't, this, this, this is not me endorsing the assassination of him. This is me providing context to understand that this guy was an awful criminal, a fascist, and he represents the worst strand of Japanese politics, which is trying to rewrite the history of Japanese fascism to bring back the Japanese empire and doing so with the staunch support of the U.S. empire. And it, what this all really shows is this something that the more and more I study history and, and learn about all of this, the more and more I see that 
The Third Reich, and not just the Third Reich, fascism in World War II was not defeated by the West. The West, the imperialist West, led by the United States, but also backed by Europe, absorbed fascism, absorbed these fascist institutions, rehabilitated these fascists, and put them in power in many places, including Japan and many parts of Western Europe. And what we're seeing today with the rise of these far-right movements across the West and in Japan and in, in other parts of the world, but specifically the West and Japan, it really reflects that this, this is the outcome of this imperialist policy of rehabilitating all of these former fascists in order to try to, to wage a war against socialism around the world. And these imperialists, they very, very clearly prefer fascism over socialism. And Shinzo Abe, for me, is the symbol of that. And people really need to resist the idea of portraying him as like some great martyr or some great hero. And finally, another point that I really should have mentioned earlier, there are a few key details about this that I should have mentioned earlier because it also provides important context for understanding the crisis that we're now seeing in Japan. This assassination of Shinzo Abe, which again, I'm not in any way endorsing by pointing out how much of a horrible criminal Shinzo Abe was. This is coming just two days before Japan's elections. So unfortunately, it, it seems very likely that the killing of Shinzo Abe is only going to further strengthen these far-right fascistic elements that want to bring back the Japanese empire. So not only am I not endorsing the assassination in any way, I'm also saying that it's, it's not only is it tragic, it's stupid because Shinzo Abe wasn't even in power anymore. And now he's, now this assassination is likely going to lead to a further crackdown on any dissident forces in Japan. Again, Japan has been a one party right wing regime since 1955 with only five years of exception. And there has been constant repression of the left for many decades and now, any people in Japan who criticize the extreme inequality in Japanese society and the ultra-capitalist policies of the government and its alliance with U.S. imperialism and its extremely antagonistic policies against China, there are people in Japan who have been protesting all of this. There are people in Okinawa who have been protesting the U.S. military occupation. Unfortunately, this assassination is probably going to... to hurt all of those movements and strengthen the authoritarian forces of the state that is going to repress all of the most progressive elements of Japanese society. So it's doubly tragic in that sense. And it shows once again that these fascist elements that were rehabilitated by U.S.-led imperialism after World War II are coming back to the surface. And this new Cold War is going to further strengthen those fascist elements and the new Cold War, in many ways, is going to be a fascist war waged on any countries that, that want to be independent, led by an increasingly authoritarian, increasingly far-right U.S. regime, led by increasingly authoritarian, increasingly, increasingly far-right regimes in Europe. Of course, we saw Boris Johnson fall, but he's probably going to be replaced by someone even more right-wing, like Priti Patel or someone. Priti Patel or someone. So... As the U.S. and Europe lurch further to the right, back into fascism, into the Dark Ages, along with Japan, 
they are further militarizing, pushing for more war and pushing for escalating this conflict with Russia and China. So I, I hate to end it on a very uh, pessimistic, dark note there, but this is what happens when instead of denazifying and having an, a, a process of getting rid of all those fascist elements, you just put them back in power, as in the case of Shinzo Abe's grandfather, who was prime minister backed by the U.S. and Japan, and who was a former Nazi collaborator and war criminal. And it's no surprise that his grandson, Shinzo Abe, follows in the same fascist footsteps. This is, yeah, this is, this is uh, I guess Malcolm X would have said, this is the chickens coming home to roost. And again, it's not in any way endorsing the killing. In fact, I think the killing is stupid, and it's going to increase... The fa fascification, the return to fascism in Japan. And we will see what the results are in the elections in two days. But it's hard to be optimistic. So unfortunately, I'm I, uh, sorry to end on a, a very dark note like that. But um, yeah, so with that said, uh, I guess I'm going to run here. It's only been... 30 minutes, but I don't see it. If anyone wants to join the chat, I'll respond to any questions. But um, I just wanted to talk about that today because that was something that was really bugging me, seeing the way that it was portrayed in the media. Shinzo Abe is like this great benevolent figure. And like I said, it's only been half an hour, but um, it looks like today is kind of... There we go. Here's Sam. Go ahead. Hey, Ben. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. All right. Do you have a schedule when you go on live? Because it's every time I'm like, I, I want to talk with you, I'm either at work or my lunch break isn't long enough. Do you have like a set time when you go on? No, I no, sorry. <laughs> it's right. usually, usually Tuesday. Usually Tuesday is the first one. And it's usually mm -hmm. around like two, three or four. Oh, that's my time. Which would be uh, like four or five or six Eastern time, and then usually Thursday or Friday, and it's like in the oh. afternoon. So, all right. Well, um, yeah. I mean, you hinted at this real quick. I mean, my question was, is is this a, something the people of Japan want in the whole like do, uh, having a neocon style government, or is this just the people in power who want it? Because those those are two very separate things. As you pointed out, like there is a large portion of Japanese people who don't want the U.S. naval bases in Japan anymore. They find that to be more of a of a you know antagonization to North Korea than anything else. They're like, listen, we're not, we have nothing to do with them. They have nothing to do with us. But if you keep you know putting bases here, and it just seems like you're just irritating them. So is that like the majority of Japanese people want this, or is it just that's the way it just seems to be be shifting in in the view of the Japanese people? Well, I mean, the Japanese system is so similar to the U.S. system. I mean, obviously, it was created by the U.S., and it has the same problems. It has extremely low rates of turnout and extreme disenchantment with the political system. I mean, obviously, the, in the U.S., it has been dominated since, I mean, the late 19th century by two parties, which are very similar parties, basically two factions of the same party. Whereas in Japan, since 1955... Excluding five years, it's only been governed by one party. So that means that most people don't have any confidence in the electoral system. And in the most recent election in 2021, there was 55% voter turnout. So it's very similar to the U.S., right? 
people just don't think that the, the political system is going to change. But there are a lot of protests. There's a lot of opposition to m many of these policies. But again, I mean, the U.S. created this system, so it reflects the same kind of lack of democracy in the U.S. <laughs> uh, well, all right, I see your point. Um so first, I just want to respond to three things. Uh, one was your video on uh, that of uh, the was it the UK foreign minister. Uh, yeah. The oh my god, you have to put a warning. You will laugh so hard. I, I was at work listening to that video, and you know it's a quiet area, and all of a sudden I'm just laughing to myself, looking like a weirdo, because I've never seen somebody struggle so obviously to say, oh well, we have to stand up for democracy and freedom, and the guy says, okay, well why are you in bed with Saudi Arabia? Well, this is not the world we, you know, we have to work with who we have to work for. And it was like, just say you're working with Saudi Arabia because they give us oil. I, I don't mind if you're going to just be upfront about it, but don't spin somebody's cupcake and tell them it's frosting. I, I was just amazed she's going to still talk about how we're for democracy and freedom. And when push, she just shifts to its economic reasons. It's like, okay, just say it's because of oil. Don't, <laughs> don't try to hide behind some, some in, uh, insane notion that we're all about, the, you know, whether the UK or the US is about freedom. But I was laughing and then when i watched the video of her like did you see that uh, her face when he had said didn't didn't uh, the prince wasn't the prince behind the killing of the, the journalist and she kind of like had that awkward face like ah, like i want to say yes because it's a fact but i i can't um no exactly i mean it, it shows the incredible hypocrisy and by the way she's now being considered to replace boris johnson so uh, meet the new boss same as the old boss well, I, when I when I, wa I went to the BBC News, like their YouTube channels, to see if they even like showed this or covered this. Nope, not one single video you can find of it. And I was like, yeah, that seems about right. Um, I had uh, two. Uh, the remaining two things is one is the video you did on uh, the China school school projects in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, I've been yeah. After I heard that, I've been trying to reach out, but like I said, the timing never works. I actually have a, a relative of mine who who lives in Iraq. And when you're talking about the school projects, actually, I'd reached out to him and I was like, hey, how, how accurate you know, is this and how do the people of Iraq feel about this? And he's like, well, they welcome it because then this is just from his count because he has a friend who's a, one of the teachers in the school systems there. And he's like, it's apparently it's so bad. There are 60 uh, kids in one class. Some are up to 90. Oh they are. God. Yeah, they're so they don't have desks. Most kids just sit on the floor. Uh, he finds a lot of kids just don't show up to school because they don't have any like belief they're going to have anything as a job. So drug rates are tend to be a lot higher. So the people of, of Iraq welcome this with open arms because when they ask like, oh, you mean the U.S. who literally destroyed every school we had and the Chinese government who's offering to build schools? Yeah, no, it's not. It's not a hard, hard pull. Uh, but I, just, I had one quick question. And, and I'll just say really quickly, you yeah. know, uh, Obviously, I mean, if you pull up your poll shows this again, especially in Africa, you know, there's been a lot of polling of Chinese infrastructure projects and people are very they have a very positive view of it. And then people say, well, well, you think China's just doing this, you know, out of the kindness of his heart? I mean, obviously, it's mutually no, beneficial, not. but it's a very simple arrangement. China says, OK, we want oil because we don't have oil. Iraq has oil. We build schools. And you can, you can, in exchange for the, us building schools, you can give us some of your oil. Like that, and there's no other, it's as simple as that. No other strings attached. And, and then people are like, well, well, uh, what about democracy or whatever? But no, I mean, that, that's, that's how the, these relations should be. One country provides something that the other country wants, and then the other country provides something that the other country wants. 
as simple as that. Yeah, it's 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 no different than a barter system. I mean, my friend said, "Well, you should." My wife, you know, you have the friends who are idiots. He said, "Well, you know, we we liberated Iraq, and it's like, oh yeah, they're thanking you from the bottom of their uh, crater holes. They can't thank yeah. you enough for destroying every single building and infrastructure they had." And you you're saying like, "Well, they should give us the oil." It's like, right? I can't believe why they're not giving it to us on a silver platter. But so, so, in, then, yeah, in, like, invade and take the oil or build schools for the oil. Hmm. Which, which yeah. do the Iraqis prefer? Exactly. And, you know, when people say, well, this is just China's plan to become the world power. And it's like, yes, the way it worked was England used to just show up at your doorstep and say, <laughs> you are now part of colony of England. That's that. The U.S. said, oh, well, we won't be so abrasive about it. We'll just put a guy in power who tends to favor us. And the Chinese government have a different approach. They come in and say, hey, what do you need? Well, we need bridges. We need schools. Great. We will provide that in exchange. Can we get access to said resource? And these countries are fully free to say no. But the, and, and I think they realize, like, well, our alternative is to go to the U.S., which will privatize every single aspect we have. Yep. Jack, 99 percent of what we own. I mean, at least the Chinese government, when you, you know, what was it, the deal they signed with Iran? It's not a one way, you know, resource taking it's like okay well we're gonna share in this resource yeah so the, it has better fav- uh, favors in that regard uh, i just had one question i'll let I'll, I'll, I'll let you go but um in regards to your video about the whole uae saudi arabia and israel like signing a pact because they want to fight iran i, I just had a uh, i was a little uh, perhaps you can clear this up for me so i get that part but then why do you have the uae who's been going to syria trying to reopen relationships with uh, syria they opened their embassy advocating that they should be back in the Arab League. At the same time, they're trying to fight Iran. Or is this kind of like a carrot and stick thing of, hey, we can you know, welcome you back and everything. All you have to do is distance yourself from Iran, which if they that's expect exactly. that to be the case. But that's not going to work. I mean, that's 10 years. Iran was the only ally. I mean, prior to that, I have to explain to people that prior to the, the Civil War, Iran and Syria just had a working relationship. But you didn't have it to the relationship that it is today because – when when Syria was pushed against the wall, that was their only ally, and now you're like, yeah, just we just need you to turn your back on them and and come back to us, and it's like, yeah, that's just not going to happen. Well, we have to understand a few a few important shifts in the region. So one, the the rise of Turkey under Erdogan, and specifically Erdogan from the AKP party pushing Muslim Brotherhood politics. Oh, you and, mean the uh, of uh, Muslim Brotherhood leader wannabe? Yeah. Yeah. So. Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they see as the biggest threat, excluding, of course, Iran, they see the Muslim Brotherhood as the biggest threat to realistically overthrowing their governments. Because obviously, I mean, there is a significant Shia minority in Saudi Arabia, but they're not, they're, they're not going to overthrow the Saudi regime. But what is more likely is having a, Erdogan-style Muslim Brotherhood government replacing the Saudi monarchy or the UAE monarchy. So the UAE and Saudi Arabia, ironically, after... Well, the UAE wasn't really involved in the war in Syria, but Saudi Arabia was very much, obviously. Yeah. Well, because Saudi Arabia said so, the UAE is not in the power to, to argue against them. But, I mean, I know yeah. this, countries like Bahrain and Oman, they usually just states themselves. Well, ba- Bahrain is basically a proxy of Saudi because right. you, you remember in 2011, there were big protests largely led by Shia in Bahrain because Shia uh, Bahrain has a Shia majority and mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia and the UAE invaded Bahrain. And basically they've just, it's become a puppet regime. But anyway, the point is that, that, so what happened is, you know, Saudi Arabia created Jaish al-Islam in Syria and helped wade this war in alliance with Qatar, 
Although, okay, excuse me, Ben. You mean you mean quote unquote moderate rebels? Let's exactly. remember the, the proper terms. Even so, though they put women in cages, yes. Um, uh, Asad Abu Khalil has a really good article about this, about the the conflict between the the uh, Takfiri forces in Syria, the so-called rebels, between the the ones that were supported by Qatar in Turkey, who are the Muslim Brotherhood, led largely by Ahra Sham. And then yeah. on the other side, you had Jaish al-Islam, which was uh, you know, uh, totally Wahhabi, uh, mm-hmm. Saudi-backed group. So anyway, so after th- it was clear that th- they lost the war, Saudi Arabia and the UAE decided, that, and also Egypt, decided that they were going to support Syria against Qatar and Turkey. And this also is around the same time of the Trump administration, in which you remember that Trump met with... The Saudis, he took his first foreign trip and he sword danced with the Saudis. Oh, and, then, and then he was kind of pseudo annexed Qatar, like to the flight yeah, patterns. They, they blockaded, yeah, they blockaded Qatar and the, the GCC countries, excluding Qatar, they blockaded it, which are all led by Saudi. And that was like a Jared Kushner plan. And, and then what happened is Turkey sent troops to Qatar. So yeah, I was just was, about to ask that because in that video you talk about uh, the alliance of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE, but then wasn't the Saudi government rolling tanks towards Qatar, and then Turkey sent military forces to Qatar, which kind of like blocked the Saudis from entering? If I'm correct. Yeah. Well, so there's two things happening. One, there's the anti-Iran alliance. All of the Gulf countries are against Iran, right? So that's okay. that's a point of unity. And the video I did and when the article I did is about a, a meeting that was held by the U.S. bringing together the U.S. military organized it in Egypt. And then uh-huh. the U.S. military brought together uh, the IOF, you know, the Israeli military, uh, Israeli occupation forces. Um, right. It also had um, so Israel, UAE, Saudi, Qatar, Bahrain and Egypt and Jordan. Okay. So right. that was that was a meeting organized by the U.S. military against Iran specifically. So for that meeting, Saudi Arabia and Qatar were willing to look past their differences against Iran. But when it comes to the region, Saudi Arabia and the UAE see Turkey and, of course, Qatar being a, like a protectorate of Turkey. Like Qatar, especially since the Saudi blockade, Qatar has become like basically... The, the reason it's still a country is basically because it has a big U.S. military base and it has a big Turkish um, and it now has a lot of Turkish military support. So in addition to their opposition to Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE see, see Qatar and by extent Turkey as a threat. And of course, Qatar is one of the main sponsors of the Muslim Brotherhood and Al Jazeera is basically Muslim Brotherhood media. So, yeah, I was about to I was about to say one thing you could notice that was prior to um, the, the Turkey's large military presence in Qatar. I remember to a, to at least a certain extent, Qatar, uh, sorry, the Al Jazeera was tend, tended to be a little bit more critical when uh, Erdogan was doing the, the purge of 2015. And then like a week after the, they sent their forces in, suddenly all nothing but good news in, in terms of Turkey. Yeah, well. Qatar also had like this kind of like palace coup that was kind of similar to what happened with MBS in Saudi. And oh, the cousin took over, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and Qatar has since become very pro-Muslim Brotherhood. So 
before, I mean, you, you probably remember that Al Jazeera, at, at least at the beginning of the Iraq war, the, the second U.S. war in Iraq in 2003, Al Jazeera yeah. was at first critical. And then the U.S. bombed Al Jazeera's office and the U.S. and the Bush administration clearly pressured Qatar. And then Al Jazeera kind of purged some of the people who later, be, who later formed Al Mayadeen. A lot of the former right. people, who, which is like the best media outlet in, in West Asia, and uh, a lot of those people were former Al Jazeera who were purged. And then after that, there was another shift, and Al Jazeera became very pro-Muslim Brotherhood later. So it's yeah, kind of shifted right. over the years. So how exactly does that play out? Like I'm trying to to visual, visualize a map, but it just seems like too many working pieces. I mean, you want to unite to fight Iran simultaneously. Two of the four want to fight the other, you know, two plus Turkey. And I feel like we're just, I mean, Syria's just literally sitting as, as, as a crossfire between all this. Well, if you want to get really complicated, even within the UAE, the different emirates have different relations to Iran. Some of them are more favorable to Iran because they do a lot of trade with Iran. So right. even even within the UAE, it's a mess. I mean, this is this is like the thing in the region is that there are these two main conflicts that are pulling the region in different directions. So one is, of course, the the question of Israeli colonialism and like what which side are you going to support? And right. we see clearly that the UAE and Bahrain have just completely abandoned the Palestinians and Egypt have completely and Jordan. They've all abandoned the Palestinians. Now, Saudi Arabia, it's conflicted because it is like, you know, it hosts uh, Mecca and Medina. So they have to pretend like they care about Muslims, even though they don't. So they like so Saudi Arabia technically still pretends to care about Palestine. But everyone knows that it's secretly collaborating with Israel. So that's yeah. that's like one of the main issues. But then now there's also that used to be like, of course, a huge issue for the region. But then with the rise of Iran, a lot of these these countries in the region just decided, screw the Palestinians, we're more concerned about Iran. So like those two issues are pulling people in different directions. I, so actually, I should say there's actually three. And the third one is the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. Because, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood also came to power in Egypt in 2011, which led to the CC coup. So those are like so some countries have different alliances. So Turkey, for instance, I was, was going to add on to that, that even I remember you and uh, Max Blumenthal had done a video on this, like saying how nothing had split the uh, Palestinian uh, solidarity cause more than the Syrian civil war because yeah. of how it split through. And I know, I mean, at least from, you know, different sources of whatever my father sends people like I remembered back then that uh, because what was it Hamas had been supporting the FSA sold because they're they were primarily getting their their aids from Qatar. And then when that started shifting, uh, this uh, now they're trying to like put an olive branch towards the Syrian government, but they're saying I don't, you know, my Arabic is terrible uh, as a as a Syrian Lebanese mix. I'm, my Arabic is awful, but it was more like the knife in the back is too strong, where Iran's now trying to be a mediator. But I mean, I, I don't even Syria still has a mixed feeling about that because even they felt betrayed. Uh, not to say they supported them financially, but politically they had always stood strong for them. So. I I don't it's too way too many. If you ever do a video, you got to show like all these pieces on a map because I you were sorry I didn't mean to cut you off, but you were talking about the next piece of Turkey. Well, no, what you, what you have to think about is just the way to think about it is each region, uh, sorry, each country in the region 
what, what, where they kind of lie on the spectrum, right? So for instance, right. Saudi Arabia is the most anti-Iran. Qatar right. is anti-Iran, but Qatar still has, still has relations with Iran, unlike Saudi Arabia, which is an enemy of Iran. Because well, the, they let their planes go through Iranian airspace, right? When the blockade had happened. Yeah. And, and also Iran is very good at diplomacy and they understand when there are like moments of openings. And right. when Saudi Arabia blockaded Qatar, Iran tried to improve its relations with Qatar. So like, and then Turkey has okay relations with Iran and they do a lot of trade, but then Turkey also Erdogan wants to be the leader of the Muslim world. Right. So mm-hmm. like all of these countries, you have to like think about like where they lie and then look at Syria. So Syria has very good relations with Iran now, but Syria right. is also avowedly secular and Syria is of course Arab majority. So before yep. the war, Syria actually had pretty good relations with Saudi Arabia, especially in terms of economics. But then Saudi Arabia was supporting all like the Salafi groups. So then that, mm-hmm. that angered the Syrian government. And then now relations were very bad during the war. But as you pointed out, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt have all normalized relations with Syria because they now are trying to pull Syria back away from Iran. But of course, Syria and Iran have good relations now. So like we have to think about like I'm a little I'm a little confused. From my understanding, I always thought Egypt more or less stayed out of it. I mean, they never supported one one group or the other. They just kind of like took a, you know, an indifferent approach. Yes, but the Arab League expelled Syria. Right, right. And and Egypt normalized. So Egypt didn't have formal relations. I mean, they had informal relations, but because the Arab League formally expelled Syria, it meant right. that the region, which all the countries in the region are part of the Arab League, obviously, it means they didn't recognize the legitimate government of Syria. Right. So technically, even though Egypt, because Egypt under Sisi is very secular. So and right. Egypt sees the Muslim Brotherhood as the main threat. In fact, mm-hmm. Egypt doesn't even its relations with Iran aren't that bad, but right. it, um, but Egypt sees the Muslim Brotherhood as its main threat. So it actually did not get involved in the war in Syria, but it right. didn't have formal relations because Syria was expelled from the Arab League. But a few years ago, Egypt did normalize relations with Syria. So now they have formal relations again. Well, just to sum it up, where what do you think will now? What, what do you think is where? What do you where do you think the dominoes are going to fall now? If you had to just take a guess in the next like five years or so, it's really hard to tell. But I think countries. So I think the Saudi regime is going to be overthrown in the next few decades. It can't. It's very unstable, and it can go in different directions. The problem now is actually it's not even about Iran at this point because. What the U.S. is trying to do is force all the countries in the region to pick a side in this new Cold War. And mm-hmm. we see this now with Israel. So yeah. Israel, because largely because a lot of Russians, after the overthrow of the Soviet Union, many Russian, uh, Russians of Jewish descent moved to Israel. Because, you know, Russia was a complete disaster in the 90s and all the neoliberal right, shock right. therapy, the life expectancy dropped by six years. There were millions of excess deaths. I mean, horrible time corruption every anyway so a lot of russians moved a lot of russian jews moved to israel and like a quarter of the israeli population are former like former people from the soviet union so russia has maintained pretty good relations with israel over the past few years but of course the war in syria it, like it made their relations worse and now mm-hmm. 
Israel is, is very clearly supporting Ukraine. So R- Russia has been protesting and like withdrew its ambassador to Israel and all this stuff. So that's part of this process. The U.S. is trying to do the same thing now. You know, Biden is visiting Saudi Arabia this month to try to pressure Saudi Arabia. So I think in the next few years, what's going to happen is that all of these countries are going to f- be forced to pick a side between the West or Russia and China. And obviously, Syria is going to pick Russia and China. Uh, it's right. very likely that Iraq is going to pick Russia and China. Iran has already picked Russia and China. Oh, yeah. No, Iraq is definitely going to lean towards that. I mean, I'm just hoping that, you know, as you had pointed out, uh, I hope the uh, now the Russians will let the Syrian, like, air defense at least kick in so Israelis can't keep bombing. I mean, what was it like? They bombed them Syria, like, over 200-plus times in one year. Yeah. And it's always, quote, a... You know, it was defensive. It's like you literally keep going into another country and then bombing them and returning. I don't know what's defensive, but you think. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. What I'm scared about is I think like in the first Cold War, the Lebanese civil war was very much a proxy war where mm-hmm. the U.S. the U.S. and Israel were supporting groups. And then there were certain groups like the PFLP that were backed by the Soviet Union. What I'm really mm-hmm. scared about is that I think. It's clear where certain countries are going to lie, especially Syria, Iraq, and Iran are going to be firmly in the Russia, Iran, Russia, China camp. But right. what I'm worried is that that Lebanon and the Gulf countries are going to just going to be in civil war, and it's going to be people battling over where they ally. Obviously, you know, Syed Hassan Nasrallah gave has given several speeches in which he said that we need to reorient our economy toward China and Russia. And it's clear that Hezbollah is the most powerful force in Lebanon, but mm-hmm. that's not going to stop potentially a civil war. So that's what I'm worried is going to happen in, in the upcoming years. And who knows? I mean, these Gulf regimes are going to be overthrown and there's probably going to be violence and war or something unless unless they can just over the West can just overthrow. Like the thing about MBS, the reason that there's been this propaganda campaign against him. I mean, he's awful. Obviously, the war in Yemen and right. all that. But the reason there's there is a lot of criticism of MBS, Mohammed Salman, is because he has been trying to play the West against Russia and China. Like he has been having good relations with Russia and China. So that's mm-hmm. why Biden is going to Saudi Arabia and he's going to tell MBS, look, you have to pick a side and he might not pick the West. So that's going to make it complicated because. How is Saudi Arabia going to ally with Russia and China when Russia and China are close allies of Iran? Last year, Iran and China signed a 25-year, $400 billion agreement. So right. this is, this I mean, is like when the you, conflict. When you talk about the overthrowing part, I mean, from what I understand is the, the reason the Saudi royal family stays solely in power is because, I mean, none of, none of the people in the family are, you know, Salafi, Salafists or Wahhabists. Um, they just tend to give the, the money to these, you know, groups because it's kind of like a pay to play. Like if they fund these, uh, groups or whatever, then they get to stay in power because I, I, I mean, I loved one thing I, I will say about Trump as awful as he was. I always said the quiet part out loud and I love that. And he said, yeah. <laughs> you know, I told, I said, King, if you know, if we're not there, you're going to be overthrown in a, you wouldn't last two weeks. And everyone's like, yeah, that's just a fact. That's just 100% true. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if it would necessarily be a civil war there when, you know, the majority of, I wouldn't say the majority, but like the strong power of the country is in that Wahhabist camp. Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, if you go to Katif in Saudi Arabia, 
you have a majority of Shia population, which yeah. is very anti-regime. So like that's it, a small, yeah, that's a small group of the country, though. Like, but I mean, Saudi Arabia is mostly migrant workers. That is and, true. Yeah. So, like, if there's an if there's an actual internal conflict, people, you know, Saudi Shia, even though they only represent a small percentage of the population, the majority of the population is immigrant workers, largely from South Asia, who have no no skin in the game. They're not going to fight to protect the monarchy. So, the most, I mean, Saudi Arabia is afraid of the Muslim Brotherhood, but if there's a violent, because they might take over, you know, through like if there's some kind of like they finally have elections or something like in Egypt. But, but if there's a violent conflict, I would bet my money on the Shia, like they're the, the best organized. So, you know, that's why they killed Sheikh Nimr Nimr. If you remember a few years ago, the Saudi regime beheaded one of the most important uh, yeah, yeah, Shia imams. That. that was like part of the 81 people who got killed. No, that was the most recent killing. This was, oh, that was the worst one. Okay. There was a okay. very important Shia imam named Nimr wow. Nimr, and he was executed in this very high-profile execution, and he was a very well-known, I mean, he was a religious leader, but he was also political, and Saudi Arabia was afraid because he would, like, lead all these big protests. So the, the most likely threat to the Saudi monarchy is them, but also, like, this is what, this is, MBS, like, purged all of his, like, cousins and, like, imprisoned um, right, and, right. And and yeah, he took the money and all that. So he made sure there were no threats to him. So now it's the U.S. is in this difficult situation where they they might want someone more more compliant than MBS, who doesn't always follow orders. So that's why that's why Biden's going to 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 Riyadh, and he's going to try to convince MBS to to firmly join their camp, but. It's an un, it's an unclear situation. And MBS also, he needs to realize that if he tries to be too independent, they, they, they might try to overthrow him. And then who knows what will happen to that regime? I mean, it's so unstable. So, I mean, it, it's so funny because we, we kept hearing for a decade that the Syrian government is supposedly this unstable regime. Yeah, it's going to fall any minute. And it's like if they lasted 10 years, I'd, I'd say they, they had a pretty good backing. Yeah. Meanwhile, if Saudi Arabia faces something like that for five seconds, I mean, as Trump said, they're going to be gone. So that for me, I think that's the real conflict. It's going to be what happens in Lebanon and what happens in the Gulf. Lebanon, unfortunately, well, is also very unstable. But the only real force holding that, that country together is, is Hezbollah, obviously. Well, I'll let you go, but um, hopefully you could have more of a conversation. I, mean, I know I bugged you last time, but hope to ha- hear a conversation with you and Chris Hedges because this, uh, this is some interesting stuff. I would love to, to see where this is headed. Anyway, I've taken up enough of the time. Thanks again, Aaron. Yeah, uh, thanks. Sorry, ben, my apologies. No worries. Yeah, thanks, Sam. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Cool. Um, I do. Unfortunately, I do have to run soon. So I, if people can, um, I'll briefly answer the questions here. If you can keep them short, please. Sorry. Go ahead. This is Ash Curious. Hey, Ash. Hi. So actually, I was a bit confused about, like, you were talking about Shinzo Abe's death, and I was a bit confused about the thing that you said, because I know very little about Japanese politics, and you said in the middle uh, of the conversation that Japan wants to colonize China through like uh, 
increasing their, their military some Hey, uh, you're you're cutting out a lot. I'm sorry. Can you hear me? I was a bit shocked because as far as I need to be like in there, uh, wait just a second. Hey, I, I don't know if you can hear me, but Hello? I'm sorry. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're cutting out a lot. So I did hear you say your I question changed. is about the re, the reorganization yeah, of Japan. Uh, yeah, so I was actually confused a little bit because uh, I know very little about Japanese politics and you were telling about like uh, China, uh, Japan was uh, is trying to recolonize China through increasing their military or something we're saying. I was a bit confused because as far as I can understand, Japan's military can't necessarily be considered competitive compared to China. So how could Shinzo Abe or his predecessors in their right mind think that they can colonize China? That's the thing I'm really confused about because even if they have a U.S. base, you know, during wartime, all types of weird directions happen. So what if U.S. sides with China and conquers Japan, for example? Like, wouldn't a country before try thinking about all these fascist things try to have enough, like, military dependency on itself so that they can do it. Like I couldn't understand the logic behind it. Yeah. So what, what I said is that, so Shinzo Abe is part of this group that has been trying to rewrite the pacifist constitution that, as you said, limits the Japanese military very greatly to being a strictly defensive military. And he wants to rewrite, he and others one or, I mean, he represents a particular contingency within far-right fascistic Japanese politics that want to remilitarize, to, to rebuild the Japanese empire. And eventually their goal would be to bring back the empire and recolonize parts of like, for instance, China and Korea. And if you just look at, if you look at a map of the old Japanese empire at its peak in the 1930s, with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria and then the Japanese war in China, which began in 1937, Japan was gobbling up all of this territory, especially deep into China. And that was just as the Nazis wanted to eventually take over Russia and Ukraine actually, actually was a huge part of the Nazi war strategy because Ukraine was the, is a major wheat, wheat uh, producer. And it's like the breadbasket. So the Nazis had this idea of Lebensraum, of like living space, of moving east and, and gobbling up the uh, Ukraine and Russia and then turning that into to like using those natural resources for the empire. That's exactly what Japan was trying to do in China, because, of course, Japan is a series of islands, it's an archipelago. So, of course, obviously, Japan right now doesn't have anywhere near the military capabilities of doing that. But that's why Shinzo Abe, among others, want to rewrite the pacifist constitution to spend much more on the military, to create an offensive military. And then, of course, in alliance with the U.S., which is supporting secessionist movements in numerous parts of China, including the U.S. for many decades has supported secessionist groups in Tibet. And now we see this very clearly in Hong Kong, Taiwan and Xinjiang. Of course, Japan also colonized Taiwan. So obviously this isn't going to happen in the next few years. But the vision in the long term of these ultra-nationalist, very far-right 
Japanese politicians like Shinzo Abe is to bring back the Japanese empire. And that in, and that involves just as the Nazis wanted to go into Russia for Japan, they, that involves turning China basically into like a resource extraction hub. Okay, thank you very much. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask, although it's not related to this topic, and that is, um, in general, do you feel like there is this instability in the West, or at least allies of the West? Like, for example, Boris Johnson resigned, or Shinzo Abe was killed, and do you feel like some more like uh, like a string of beads will roll down all the events? Like, do you feel like it's heading towards an unprecedented instability no one can predict like anything can happen at any time yeah i mean frankly i think it's heading toward fascism unfortunately and i mean i laugh about it only to hide like my in- incredible fear like i i think it's very unstable and all of these political systems are collapsing because they're completely undemocratic and because people's lives keep getting worse and worse and because the entire neoliberal model was always predicated, one, on cheap consumer goods built in East Asia. And of course, now that China has risen and has an independent model, they can't rely anymore on China producing all these cheap goods. And also, a lot of it was was based on cheap Russian energy. And we see this especially in Europe. The entire neoliberal European model was just you have extremely cheap energy, and to, including oil and gas from Russia, And then you use that to power German industry and French industry. And now they're all boycotting Russian energy. So they're having this massive economic crisis, which means that the living standards are, are, are dropping, which means that, you know, what the inflation is eating into people's wages. And then meanwhile, the government is offering no solutions. So the left is extremely weak and crushed. So what happens is you have more and more far right groups who rise and say that they probably say the problem is immigration. The problem is, you know, uh, gay people. The problem is blah, blah, blah. And all of this. And it's this extreme move toward fascism. And that's what I'm scared about. And that's why I'm scared also that this killing in Japan is going to further strengthen those very same fascist forces, because we've already seen people on social media try to claim that the, the guy who killed Shinzo Abe is a leftist. Now, we don't really know much about him, although we do know that according to the Japanese police, he said that he killed Shinzo Abe because Shinzo Abe is part of an organization that he doesn't like. They didn't name the organization, but it might be this fascist group, um, Nippon Kaigi. So that worries me, too, that in, in Japan, we, we could see a move more toward fascism. And in, in, in certainly in the U.S., I mean, Donald Trump, if he runs, he's going to win the next election. I mean, the Democrats are going to be crushed in the upcoming midterms in November. They have completely failed to change anything. And there's no there's no left wing alternative. So it's going to move further and further to the right. That's what scares me. And that's what keeps me up at night. Well, yeah, I mean, if there is no like alternative, okay, whether it's left wing or right wing alternative, why isn't it that those people who strongly speak maybe in YouTube or some other platforms as alternatives, why don't they come together and form their own party? Like, it doesn't matter whether it's a left-wing or right-wing alternative. At the end of the day, it should be someone who's responsible. And why is it that they feel afraid that voters won't be there for them? That's like, I don't understand that thing, actually. 
Well, because the U.S. political system is not democratic in any way. The way every institution is set up is to prevent the creation of a new party. There are so many obstacles. I, I have friends who have who have run third party tickets, whether that's like the Green Party or other parties. And everything in the U.S. political system is set up to prevent them from being able to participate. You can't participate in in debates because debates only have Democrats and Republicans. And in many cases, you can't even get on the ballot. Or if you if you try to get enough signatures to get in the ballot, the, the parties will like kick you off the ballot. This happened to this this guy who's running as a Green Party candidate, and he got he got like tens of thousands of signatures to be in the ballot, and then they, they just kicked him off the ballot. So the entire system is created to prevent people from running a third party, and in the U.S. at least, and it's it's similar in many parts of Europe. I mean, we saw what happened with Jeremy Corbyn. In the case of Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, the the British security state, these intelligence agencies, they they conspired to prevent him from being prime minister. So. This is what I was saying earlier, like all of these institutions created by the West to prevent the rise of, you know, during the Cold War to prevent socialism from taking over and all this stuff. They're all they have all been completely eroded. Neoliberalism has eroded every single democratic institution. And they're just becoming more and more authoritarian as things become more unequal, as people's living standards get worse. And, you know, especially in the U.S., there's more homeless people. People are more and more desperate and everything's just falling apart. I mean, it's really, again, I quoted that Malcolm X earlier, but he said the chickens, chickens have come home to roost. Like this, this is like a completely self-made disaster. Yeah. And another thing that I have noticed is that whenever someone raises these questions, like very simple questions, like things such as uh, rising gas prices, you know, without stating their political ideology. Automatically, people assume that, oh, it's a CCP shell, it's a um, <laughs> RTV shell, and whatnot they think, actually. Like, I don't understand. Like, why place labels when someone is, you know, maybe doesn't even believe in that ideology? Maybe it's not even a communist, for example. But, you know, somehow this, I don't know, Amy, do you feel like fascism actually has this feature of placing labels on people? I'm not sure, like... How do you actually view that? Well, yeah, and that's that's a huge part of it is saying, you know, uh, the Nazis talked about Judeo-Bolshevism and, and like cultural degeneracy. And if you said something they didn't like, they say, well, that's you're a Jew. And if you're if even if you're not Jewish, like being a Jew for the Nazis is not even about your racial like racial like, uh, you know, your ancestor ancestry. It's just like you're a Jew or you're whatever. So like it's similar to that saying like, oh, well, you you're a Putinist. You're an Assadist. You're a Kremlin shill. You're a, a CCP puppet or whatever. It's all just about easily shutting people's brains down. Or you're a communist during the Red Scare in the U.S. Oh, you're a communist. So that's exactly what the strategy is. And what's scary about it, I mean, as someone, I have zero links whatsoever to Russia and China. I have never been to Russia. I've never been to China. I have appeared on Russian and Chinese media, but I've also appeared on Turkish media and Indian media and Latin American media and Iranian media. But I, I constantly get smeared in like mainstream media outlets. They call me like a, a Russian shill or Chinese shill. What's scary about that is that the U.S. government might start like imprisoning people claiming that they're like a Russian spy or something without any evidence. 
that's what's scary. And you know, you mentioned this this thing of like rising gas prices. We see the same thing from these Western governments because they don't want to admit that their own policies have resulted in this massive inflation crisis, including the, the horrible, like crazy sanctions imposed on Russia, which is leading to gas and oil prices rising. So now if you talk about rising gas prices, Joe Biden said that it's it's Putin's fault and you have to blame Putin. And someone in, in the Canadian parliament brought up rising gas prices and the deputy prime minister, Christy Freeland, who's the second in command of the government, she said, that's a that's a Putin talking point And you're helping Vladimir Putin by complaining about gas prices. And it's it's the perfect way for them to shift blame away from their own policies onto Russia and China. So it becomes this existential war where everything bad in the world is because of Russia and China. And and that's exactly I mean, this is because of all these problems that we've been talking about and the collapse of this neoliberal model created by the West. It's collapsing in on itself and their last gasp for air, their last strategy to save themselves is to wage a war on Russia and China and to say that if you criticize anything, then you're helping Russia and China. So you have to stop criticizing. Well, yeah, that's very much scary, actually, because actually when I think about, you know, like going to the USA to study or going to Canada to study, I think about the increasingly like fascist environment that's going to take place and what type of hate crime can happen against me for my skin color. And yeah, it's very scary. Like we don't know at what direction it might turn, but sometimes I actually think about like um, as a student, whether I should choose China as an alternative, like <clears throat> a few decades ago, nobody would have thought that actually as an alternative for safe study environment. Cause many of my friends also, they felt, China is safer and they went there or their siblings went there. And that's why I'm a bit scared about, you know, this increasing fascism. It's, I don't know. It's scary. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm very scared about it. And I don't even live in the U.S. anymore. I'm from the U.S. I live in Latin America, but it's uh, I, I wish I could be optimistic, but I really do what it does keep me up at night. I really think that we are heading toward a very dangerous time in the West and not just the US in general, in Europe and the West, like it is a very dangerous moment historically. And everything I was talking about with Japan and all of that, like those fascists, like they were never like fascism was never really defeated. It was, it was like absorbed and now it's coming back. And it's my biggest fear of all is not only that my biggest fear is that, it will lead to World War Three and potential nuclear war. That's what scares me. And this war in Ukraine is, is it really shows how dangerous it is. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I noticed is that no amount of, how do I say, like uh, safety in terms of having a nuclear weapon and boosting about it can actually give someone immunity from a war, actually, like... When a war happens, it's inevitable. They don't think logically. During a time of war, people lose logic. And I think they just think, I don't know, maybe they just take random actions without thinking of consequences. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what's scary. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Ash. Um, 
So I, I do want to apologize to Aaron and Owen. I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, fortunately, I know you guys are regular callers. I've, I've taken questions from you before, so I do feel bad. I do have to run, unfortunately. But um, I'll be doing another one of these next Tuesday. So I'm sorry for, for bailing. Um, I have to run. But please definitely join next time, and I will absolutely take your question. I'm sorry about that. But I do want to thank everyone who listened. And as always, this episode will be available on Spotify and iTunes and all those places you can find podcasts. So I apologize for not taking every question, but today it was a very good discussion and I, I just um, wish I could have, I wish I had more time, but next time. So talk to you all soon.